0: I'm Felix Bennell, and this is Episode 11 of The Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, An Informal Portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published in 1951 by Viking. We're still on the chapter that's called Mary Kenworthy and the Railroads, 1873-1893, to 1893, and this is Section 5. The better element and the Chinese were taken by surprise when the Sinophobes struck on Sunday morning, February seventh, 1886, The troops had gone back to Vancouver. The Cutter Wolcott was cruising the Upper Sound. The Home Guard had returned its guns. The anti-Chinese had timed their move perfectly. Shortly after 7 o'clock, the mob moved into the Chinese district. The Sinophobes were organized into groups of five order committees, they called themselves. The leader of a committee would pound on the door of a Chinese house and say they had come to see if the city health regulations were being obeyed. Once inside, the leader would inform the Chinese that the building was condemned as a hazard to health and warned them that if they wished to avoid serious trouble, they would get out of town at once. The steamer queen of the Pacific was at the ocean dock about to sail for San Francisco. Did they want to leave with her? The Chinese had no choice. With their doors open and hundreds of determined working men milling in the street outside, they could only say yes. Once the Chinese had agreed to go, the chairman would tell the people waiting outside to, quote, help out the heathens, unquote. The mob would rush in, carry out all the household goods, and pile them in wagons, and hustle the Chinese off to the ocean dock. So unexpected was a sinophobe assault that nearly two hours passed before the town was aware of what was going on. Judge Thomas Burke was at breakfast when a panting Chinese rushed in to tell him that his people were being driven out of town. Burke at once informed W.H. White, the United States attorney in Seattle. White hurried to the waterfront where policemen were standing by while the mob led the Chinese to the dock. He ordered the policemen to break up the mob, but the officers said they could do nothing more than see that no physical harm came to the Chinese. White cursed the police as cowards. He ordered the crowd to disperse, and when they jeered at him, he cursed them too. He was still railing at the mob when Mayor Yesler and Sheriff McGraw arrived. The three men hurried off to engine house number one to sound the alarm. One of the agitators tried to stop White from ringing the fire bell, but Sheriff McGraw grabbed him. At 10.30 a.m., the bell clanged the call to arms for the home guard. Here's a footnote here. The anti-Chinese faction later expressed indignation at this, quote, willful violation of the ordinance prohibiting the ringing of fire bells except for fire or drill, unquote. Meanwhile, Territorial Governor Squire, who happened to be staying in Seattle, was informed of the outbreak. He issued a proclamation warning lawbreakers they would be punished and urging all citizens except those deputized to enforce the law to stay home. The proclamation was hastily printed. It was read from the pulpits of most of the town's churches that morning. To United States Deputy Marshal Henry, fell the awkward task of reading the proclamation to the mob. Protected by 30 armed deputies, Henry made his way to Commercial in Maine, and from the steps of a building, he read the proclamation. He was booed and hissed. Members of the mob, still shouting threats, followed him back to the courthouse. Governor Squire heard the shouts. It sounded like a revolution to him. He wired General Gibbon to send troops at once from Port Townsend. The general wired back, quote, there is no one in America who can order the interference of troops except the President of the United States, unquote. So after considerable indecision, the governor wired President Cleveland. In the meantime, the mob had herded nearly all of Seattle's 350 Chinese to the Ocean Dock at the foot of Main Street, where they huddled on the planks under the black hull of the steamer. An enormous crowd of workingmen, many of them from Tacoma and Renton, milled around the shore end of the dock waiting to see the Chinese board the Queen of the Pacific. The Chinese said they were anxious to go, but there was a hitch. Captain Jack Alexander of the Queen wanted $7 a head to take the refugees to San Francisco. Only nine of the Chinese had money to pay their fare. A committee passed the hat through the crowd and raised $600 toward paying the fares, and 86 more Chinese went up the gangplank. But times were hard, and the rest of the money could not be raised. Mary Kenworthy and a dozen men solved the financial problem. They signed a personal note jointly guaranteeing $1,500 to pay the rest of the passage money. Captain Jack was willing to accept the note. But before the Chinese could be put aboard, a man pushed through the crowd and handed Alexander a piece of paper. It was a writ of habeas corpus. A Chinese merchant had appeared before Judge Green and protested that his countrymen were being unlawfully detained aboard the ship. Alexander was ordered to appear in court with his passengers at 8 a.m. the next day. That seemed to end the possibility of deporting the Chinese that day. The town settled into a state of siege. The Chinese were confined in a warehouse on the dock. A guard was placed around them and a committee formed to bring them food. During the afternoon, one cynophobe thought of a new approach. The writ was only for the Chinese who had boarded the Queen. Why not deport the rest by rail? A committee was sent to the Northern Pacific office and the superintendent agreed, for a dollar a passenger, to haul the remaining Chinese to, of all places, Tacoma, Word of these negotiations reached Sheriff McGraw. He warned the railroad superintendent that if he transported any Chinese against their will, he could be prosecuted for kidnapping. The superintendent immediately dispatched all his rolling stock to Tacoma, empty. Then the sheriff ordered the home guard to take control of the dock. The nervous guardsmen, their new rifles feeling huge as cannons in their cold hands, marched to the dock. They met no resistance. The crowd, tired after more than 12 hours of standing around, had dispersed. A dozen sentries were watching the Chinese. The home guard locked the sentries in the warehouse with the prisoners. Early the next morning, the Chinese were marched to the courthouse at Third and Yesler for their hour in court. Judge Green told them that those who decided to stay would be protected. The Chinese, however, had come along streets lined with angry workingmen, and all but sixteen wanted to go. They were taken back to the dock, and they started to board the Queen but the Queen could only carry 196 passengers and Captain Alexander was now anxious to keep his operations strictly legal. He refused to take on any more. At noon, the Queen stood out to sea, leaving about 185 Chinese on the dock. The next steamer, the George W. Elder, was not due for six days. George Venable Smith suggested that the Chinese stay at the dock, if not until the Elder arrived, at least until the crowd dispersed, The home guard overruled him. It was decided to take the Chinese back to their homes. The major of the guards asked Smith if he thought the crowd would make trouble. Smith said that since his advice was not being followed anyway, he wouldn't try to guess. Shortly after noon, the home guard started to escort the Chinese back to their shanties in the lava bed. The waiting crowd, who had seen the queen leave, now saw the Chinese returning to their homes. They did not know of the agreement that the Chinese would take the next boat, or else did not believe it would be kept. They wanted the Chinese to stay at the dock. As the home guard moved forward, the workingmen milled around them. At the corner of commercial and mill, the crowd was so thick the home guard could not push through. The situation was tense and someone panicked. A big bearded logger pushed up against the front rank of the home guards, asking them where they thought they were going with all those Chinamen. Somebody shouted, Arrest that man! One of the guardsmen pushed the logger and said, Come with me! The logger grabbed at the guard's rifle, another guardsman clubbed him, then the shooting started. Five men fell wounded, One fatally, the big logger. And there's a footnote here. He died 30 hours later, but not before dictating his own account of the riot. Quote My name is Charles G. Stewart. I will be 34 years old in May. I have no home. I work in the woods when I can get work. Been in Seattle two months and a half. I think I will die from the effects of my wound if I get much worse. I don't expect to recover if the pain continues, but will die inside 24 hours. Dr. Smith says my chances of recovery are very slim, and I believe him. I was standing on the New England corner, having come from the wharf, when I saw the Chinamen coming. We came to the New England corner to stop them and see where they were going. When they came up, we stopped them till the officers come to see what they were going to do with them. We stepped in and said, Hold on, gentlemen, what are you going to do with these Chinamen? A man named Dave Webster, a tall, sandy, complexioned man, said, You come along with us. I told him, No, sir, I have done nothing to go with you for nor we don't intend to, not a man of us, but we want to move the Chinaman out of Seattle and do it decently and quietly if we can. He pulled and jerked me and another fellow caught me. I think the other fellow's name is Carr. He is tall with a black beard and a lawyer, a young man. So this Webster raised his gun and struck me across the head, and at the same time something hit me on the arm and I fell. It happened to be a bullet. I found that out after I came up here. I squatted down with my feet under me from the effects of the blow on my head and wound in my arm. Some man at that moment shot me in the body when I was down. Who it was, I do not know, but I think it was that lawyer. Carr. I do not know his name. All I know is what I told, but I think it was Carr from the place where he stood when they picked me up. That's all I have to say. I did not see anybody shoot me. I heard Carr say if I did not come he would shoot. Did not see him. I don't know whether I will be able to make another statement or not. I have no hope myself of recovery. Dr. Smith tells me I cannot recover, and as he has doctored me before, I have confidence in him." When the shooting started, two other groups of militia were on guard. The Seattle Rifles were on the wharf, and Company D was at the courthouse. The Rifles heard the shots and rushed on the double to the scene. They joined the guards in a hollow box around the Chinese, who had sensibly fallen to the ground behind their baggage. Judge Roger Green and Judge Ike Hall were walking down Yesler Way when they heard the shots. They turned and sprinted to the courthouse to inform the troops there. Green, though older, was the better runner. He reached the courthouse first and told Private James Hamilton Lewis to tell Captain Haynes to hurry Company D to the scene of action. Lewis did. And there's a footnote here. Lewis had a distinguished political career in Seattle and later was elected senator from Illinois. As senator, he attempted to have Mrs. Maynard awarded a government pension, and he once proposed that the Army be abolished and replaced by Home Guard units. The crowd cheered when Company D came running down the street. Its members were drawn largely from the working class, and Captain Haynes was popular with the common people. They half expected Company D to do battle with the Home Guard, or at least to arrest Judge Burke, for a rumor that he had given the order to fire was spreading through the crowd. Company D fell in with the rifles and the Home Guard. Captain Haynes mounted a box and informed the crowd that the Chinese would leave on the next boat. Heckler shouted, Burke, Burke, give us Burke. He told the crowd they ought to go home. Burke, Burke, we want Burke. He said that if those who had fired into the crowd had acted illegally, they could be prosecuted, and that statement probably saved further disorder. The mob broke up, the militia escorted the Chinese to their homes. The idea of bringing the law down on Judge Burke fascinated the Sinophobe leaders, who hunted up a justice of the peace and had him swear out warrants for Burke, the Reverend L.A. Banks, E.M. Carr, Frank Hanford, whom they had confused with his brother Cornelius and david webster the warrants charged shooting with intent to kill they were given to constable hg thornton to serve the constable found the five men at the courthouse when he tried to arrest them judge green who feared that burke would be lynched and perhaps the other four as well told him that all five were members of his court and could not be arrested thornton went off to ask for advice and before he came back green talked governor squire into proclaiming martial law under martial law civil warrants could not be served Judge Green read the proclamation to the crowd assembled outside the courthouse, and the crowd dispersed. By 3 p.m., the trouble was over. Legal purists had some doubts about a governor's authority to declare martial law, but there was no doubt at all about President Cleveland's, who made it official the next day. On Wednesday, eight companies of the 14th Infantry arrived in town. For some time after that, things were very quiet indeed. The Monday after the shooting, most of the remaining Chinese left aboard the Elder, Martial law was lifted on February 22nd, though the troops remained. Things returned almost to normal, but a few details remained to be taken care of. Burke and the four men who'd been accused by the Sinophobes of shooting with intent to kill were at last arrested. At their preliminary hearing, the judge agreed with their argument that the case against them was political rather than factual. He released all five on bail. They were never brought to trial. The case against Burke rested on the fact that he had been carrying a double-barreled shotgun when the trouble started and a shotgun blast had ripped into the wall of one of the buildings on Main Street. Burke declared and proved to the satisfaction of his friends that a shotgun had not been fired. He certainly had not shot the logger who was hit twice by rifle fire. Though he was legally cleared, thousands in Seattle continued to blame him for the trouble. He was often threatened and insulted. Quote, "So many people know the answers before they know the questions," he wrote bitterly to a friend. Who did kill the big logger was never determined. Two men believed that they were responsible, Private R.B. Partridge and Captain J.A. Hatfield of the Home Guards. Each told Sheriff McGraw that he had fired the fatal shot. Partridge was so upset about it that he died a month later. He was probably not responsible. Hatfield's story was that he had shot at Stewart from a distance of seven feet, so close a range that he could hardly be mistaken about hitting him. McGraw had told each man to keep his secret, to announce his responsibility would have made it almost impossible for either man to remain in town. Hatfield's story was not made public for twenty years, not until he was dead ten years and his son of age. George Venable Smith, who had emerged as the strongest man among the anti-Chinese, left Seattle for Port Angeles, where he was a midwife at the birth and a pallbearer at the death of the Puget Sound Cooperative Colony, an experiment in socialism. Some of the agitators dropped from sight, among them Dan Cronin, Six of the Sinophobes were, months later, brought to trial on charges of conspiracy. The defense did not even bother to sum up its case, and the jury promptly acquitted all six. Eventually, Congress, quote, out of humane consideration and without reference to the question of liability, unquote, appropriated $276,619.15 as full indemnity for the losses and injuries sustained by Chinese subjects at the hands of American citizens in the agitation on the West Coast the money was paid to the Chinese government. And we'll stop right there on this episode of The Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road by Murray Morgan, written in 1951 and published by Viking. The section we're in is called Mary Kenworthy and the Railroads, 1873-1893, to 1893, and that was Part 5. We'll pick it up again on the next episode of The Housebound Historian. I'm Felix Bennell.